This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. If you plant a flower and it withers, you don't immediately blame the flower. I want to point out, too, this is not good. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we share recommendations from scientists to foster a supportive research environment. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 166. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Josh, where are you right now? Dan, you're not going to believe this. I am recording this podcast sitting in the passenger seat of my truck. The pandemic has finally gotten you. Uh, <laughs> you have to record in unusual places, not your home, out of the studio. Why the truck today, Josh? Uh, I'm actually a nomad right now, Dan. Uh, my family and I just sold our home here in North Carolina, and we are heading for a new chapter up in the Washington, D.C. area. So uh, I'm currently homeless. That's that's exciting. And, and I think the audio quality is fine in the truck. So we'll have to go with this. Uh, obviously, <laughs> we will continue podcasting. We've, we've figured out how to do that during the pandemic. You're figuring out how to do it uh, in a truck. So nothing's going to stop us now. Nothing's going to stop us now, Dan. Uh, I am glad we invested in this nice mobile recorder, so that's coming in handy. Uh, well, 166 episodes in, and we're still discovering new things. you got to love it. Absolutely. Well, we did get together this week and recorded a segment using that mobile recorder uh, with some surprise ethanol that I brought over. All right, Dan, let's cut over to our fireside ethanol section. All right, Dan, welcome to my backyard. I am enjoying it. You got a fire going. It is chilly outside, but not cold. And the fire is perfect. You know, last time we talked, you brought a Harpoon Dunkin' Donuts collab called the Pumpkin Ale. And I happened to be in a beer store and saw that Harpoon and Dunkin' Donuts didn't stop with the pumpkin beer. They continued the collaboration to worse and better places than that one and i brought all three of the remaining beers in the series and i want to give them to you without telling you what they are and this is the dunkin donuts dunkin donuts collaboration harpoon collab well let me tell you my three favorite dunkin donuts donut flavors okay great okay let's see if we have a match here um i would say this is in no particular order but i'm a fan of the blueberry cake okay is that one? I'm not going to tell okay. you where they are yet. Okay, the blueberry you, cake. That's good to lead off of this. The uh, the sour cream donut. Okay, solid. One of the most underrated donuts, in my opinion. Got it. And the classic Boston cream. Classic Boston cream. Okay. Well, uh, did you decide whether you want bad news or good news first? I'm going to give them to you in an order that I feel about them. Which which order do you want them in? Um, I like to. Let's start with the bad news. We'll do the bad news. And, and keep in mind, my personal taste is different than your personal taste, so you may love this. You mean your personal taste like you're a Krispy Kreme guy? Exactly. <laughs> so this is in a can. Yeah, you, you and, have a cup ready? And I can't see this, so yeah. this is blind taste testing. Am, am I going to try to guess what kind of donut? This is why we're sitting outside, so that you Don't worry, can't, can't actually see I the can. I can't read the can. I also can't see how much foam that's I'm plenty, pouring. That's plenty, that's okay, plenty. Okay, just a taste. All right, so, so what's the goal here? You want me to try to identify what I'm tasting? Sure, you can try okay. to identify what you're tasting. And if, I'm going to let you taste it first. <laughs> so if you love it, you can have the whole can. Uh, it smells awful. <laughs> <laughs> Off to the races. Okay. And it's totally dark out here, so I can't even see what color this is. doesn't this matter what porter, color it is. It can be a blonde. I don't know. It is, it right. is a culinary experience, not, not for your visual system. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. I, what are the flavors? What are the notes you're picking up? All right. I want to say I'm getting like, if I said butterscotch, would that be way off? Uh, it's totally possible you could you could taste something like butterscotch. 
And I'm trying to think in the realm of donuts. I don't know that I've had a butterscotch donut at Dunkin' Donuts, but... Are you a fan of it? Not a fan? You drink lots of it? You know, it's not... The initial taste was a little jarring. Uh, I think that could have been because I had no visual cues to go by at all. There's a lot of flavor here. Let me say that. Yeah. Well, would you like the reveal? Are you ready for it? Yeah, let me know. What do we got here? This is the Harpoon Duncan Maple Cream. Maple. There we go. Maple. There was maple that, that you were yeah, That's tasting. totally it. Uh, I'm going to set that next to you just in case you want some more of it. Okay. You, see, now that you know what it is, you feel better about it? Um, I don't feel better about it, but I feel that this beer is what they say it is. Agreed. And the pumpkin tasted... The pumpkin was too. Pumpkin-y. So I will give them two check marks for the beer tasting like what they represent it should taste like. Probably contains some maple cream. I'd believe that. Aldehydes that are <laughs> yeah, flavored exactly, like that. Exactly. Okay, here's, here's round number two. Get yourself ready. Now this one I expected to be the worst. And it wasn't as bad as that one to me. So here you go. We're moving on up in the world. Wow, this one smells really different. Okay, Dan, I'm I'm gonna get my hopes up because this could it happen. This smells like the blueberry cake, one of my favorite Dunkin' Donuts. Give it a taste. Like it really smells like it really smells it, it, like it, that. It donut. Absolutely smells like blueberries. Like if I had a blueberry cake donut at Dunkin' Donuts in a bag, this is what the bag would smell like. I will say it smells it. like blueberry flavoring. I don't know if it smells like blueberries. Those are different things. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. How'd that one strike you? Um, this did not taste like I expected it to. This had a very sharp, almost chemical note to it. Like it had a bitterness, but not a hoppy bitterness. I would say tough to probably judge after the sweetness of the maple cream. I'm I'm also getting some sort of spice on the spice note. Okay, just because of the smell. I'm going to go ahead and guess this is uh, blueberry cake. And do you know what style of beer it's in? Because that could be some of what you're tasting. All right. This, w- this would make no sense to me. I would never attempt to mix these two things. But I'm going to say blueberry cake IPA. You have just tasted the Duncan Harpoon Blueberry Matcha IPA. Oh, I nailed it. With matcha green tea powder. Wow, I nailed it. And Blue, you absolutely nailed it. Uh, the matcha, okay. That's the, that extra that other, flavor the other that flavor I was getting you were in not there. accustomed to. Uh, okay. I know two wrongs don't make a right, but I think this beer may prove that two rights don't make a wrong. Or two, <laughs> right, two rights do make a wrong. Yeah, and I did. You notice I snuck in an IPA on IPA Freefall, so don't hold that against me. Finally, you are almost free of this. I, I want to point out, too, this is not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as a lover of, as and I stated before I knew what you were bringing, the blueberry cake is one of my top three Dunkin' Donuts. An IPA and is like one it. of my top beer types that I enjoy. This is not good. Okay, here was, here was my personal favorite out of the, the pumpkin, the maple cream, and the blueberry matcha. Here is the final beer in the pack. Are you ready? I'm ready. So is this the full set? Have I, we I believe it's okay. the full set. Okay, this one does not have as strong of a nose, which is I will say it's is a blessing. Not that thing. <laughs> now now this is not too bad. Exactly. Not too bad. This uh, so this is reminding me of you know a a chocolate stout would be what comes to mind with this one. And at least it's not offensive, right? No, this tastes like a beer that I would, that you would see at a respectable draft house. Uh, you go to, and yeah, if I if somebody poured me this and I ordered it, I would not be, not be disappointed. What do we got here? This is the Duncan Midnight, and I believe it's either a porter or a stout. Although it doesn't say on the can, and I didn't look it up. So okay, so what's the donut? Here, what's the midnight, uh, midnight donut? Midnight flavor. <laughs> I've never heard of a midnight donut. Tastes like midnight. <laughs> uh, I'm getting chocolate notes. There must be some kind of, uh, you know, I do like the chocolate cake donut as well. I do too. That's my favorite. So the maybe, double chocolate, chocolate, yeah, with chocolate. Maybe donut. that's what this is. I don't know. All right, do you want me to to rank these? Yeah, go for it. I'd love to hear it. Uh, all right, I'm going to. Uh, 
unfortunately have to put the blueberry matcha IPA at the bottom. Okay. It just was too jarring in not Especially good after the maple cream. <laughs> um, I think then I'm going to put the pumpkin donut. The oh, pumpkin. Okay. What style Second was that even? Last, I can't yeah. even remember. The pumpkin ale. Uh, pumpkin donut ale. That one's going to be third. Then I think second is going to go to the maple. That's the one you have to drink now. I'm not taking it. And uh, number one's the midnight. Okay, we'll fight over that one. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's just you can have them all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Joshua. Well, thanks for being a good sport and uh, for enjoying the seasonal Duncan Harpoon collaboration. Uh, can't really recommend picking up the 12-pack. That's a lot of this to drink. But hey, if you want to have a good time with your friends this fall, uh, pick up the Duncan Harpoon collaboration and let us know which one is your favorite. Or least favorite. All right, Dan. I'm still recovering from uh, those Dunkin' Donuts beers. It was not good. Not good. But it was fun. Uh, and we did get a suggestion from a listener uh, that we will try out maybe in our next episode. So stay tuned for how to make pumpkin beers taste better. And that's a good reminder. If there's a type of beer that you like, we would love to hear about it. And maybe we'll try it on the show. Dan, we wanted to say thank you to our sponsors, especially Promega. In 2021, we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of bioluminescence as a tool for life science research. From illuminating protein interactions to giving us brighter tools for imaging, luminescent proteins have brought light to many different areas of research. When you're looking to study complex biological interactions, a bioluminescent reporter assay might be the tool you're looking for. Explore resources on bioluminescence and learn how it can be applied to your project. Visit promega.com slash hellophd to learn more. And we also want to thank BioBox. Are you spending months learning how to use bioinformatic tools? Leverage the BioBox platform to process, analyze, and explore your genomic data without learning how to code. Accelerate your research and sign up for your 30-day free trial at biobox.io. All right, Dan, let's get on with our topic of the week. Josh, hopefully you can remember the last episode where I interviewed Andrea Hayward. She's the Senior Associate of Global Community Engagement at Cactus Communications. And she and I spoke about a global research survey that they conducted uh, about a year ago asking scientists and researchers, grad students, postdocs, uh, faculty about their experience in research and really specifically about their mental health and some of the stressors uh, that come to them by way of working in this academic setting. Do you remember that, Josh? You know, Dan, I can't remember all of our episodes, but I definitely remember the very last one. Uh, Fantastic. but, (laughs) But that was a great one and very important topic. And as promised, I am looking even more forward to the rest of that, hearing the rest of that conversation you had with Andrea this week, where we move from identification of the problem through that survey to starting to think about what we can do up to address that problem. Um, and so that's what we're going to get into this week on the show. Well, here's the rest of that interview. So we have spent some time talking about the highs and the lows of your global mental health survey. And you published a separate report on some recommendations, some things that uh, academic institutions can and should do to improve mental health for faculty, students, postdocs. So let's talk about some of those recommendations. The, The first thing you talk about is to address bullying, harassment, and discrimination. You put that front and center. Tell me why. We put out a question towards the end of the survey. It was an open-ended question. And the question asked, what kind of changes does the researcher community want to see? What kind of changes do they think that universities and research institutes and just decision makers in academia, what can they do to help you or rather to make your work environment more nurturing, more supportive? And um, we received more than 5,000 open-ended comments in various languages uh, in about, I think, seven languages. Uh, People took the survey in seven languages. And so we did a thorough qualitative analysis of these. 
and we identified the most popular themes. And unfortunately, the theme that stood out as the most common was people really expressing a need for universities, institutions, and just various stakeholders in academia to address bullying, harassment, and discrimination, and actually create measures to ensure that there's more equality for for everyone in academia. And what would that look like? Because addressing bullying is is a big topic, or or discrimination, harassment. Are there specific things that you think institutions can do? Sure. Um... So I feel like one of the comments, I've been through this so many times and I just have some comments memorized because they just struck a chord. One of the comments that really struck me was just take people seriously. When someone is flagging a behavior or an email or just an interaction that seemed problematic to them and offended them in some way, don't shoot them down. Uh, No one brings something up if there's no reason to or if they've not felt like it's offended them in some way. And so the person actually said, what might seem okay to you, what might seem as a joke or just kidding around to you, it might be offending someone in a way that's not even occurring to you. You never know what people are going through, right? We never know what kind of struggles, what kind of mental health challenges people are dealing with. And so I feel like it would be great if universities could create support channels where if not to fix the issue, at least to hear people out as a start. There should be, so you could say like a bullying and harassment complaint cell where there's actually someone there that will hear both sides of the story and will not just decide, okay, no, this is not serious enough. I don't think uh, anyone's in that position to decide what is serious and what isn't. And I feel like when people raise such issues and it's not something to be taken lightly and People should be taken seriously. I think that's a great starting point. Yeah, a lot of times the response will be, oh, he was just joking or that's just his personality. I I distinctly remember a PI in a lab near mine on the same floor. We would hear him screaming, yelling at his postdocs, at his graduate students. And at at the time it it was frequent enough and we knew his personality but we had sort of accepted it or normalized it. And, and we would just, you know, kind of roll our eyes. There he goes again. I guess he's mad at so-and-so today. But looking back, wow, that is so destructive that yeah. this, this faculty member was able to treat people that way and there were no repercussions. There was no correction. There, there just shouldn't be room to allow for uh, saying things like, oh, that's just the way he is, or he's just a difficult person. He's great once you get to know him. So, so I feel like at the end of the day, it is a professional setting. And um, exactly. expectations, yeah, expectations of how people behave, how they speak to colleagues, or what they're expecting of you at work should have that kind of professional etiquette and decorum, which I think is... Um, Maybe no one talks about it or uh, it's just missing. Um, Your second recommendation is to ensure job security and adequate funding for research and better pay for researchers. Amen to that. I I think it it feels unsteady sometimes for researchers in this publisher parish mentality in a place where pay doesn't increase with inflation. This is this must be something that people asked for regularly in the survey. Yeah, they did. It was just, um, so just more pay, as simple as that. Job security, they were very common themes in some of the um, suggestions that came from researchers themselves. And if you go back to some of the other qualitative findings that we found, we did find that about 40% of uh, the global sample was not satisfied with their financial situation. There was um, a, a strongly agree across the board uh, for that particular statement. And I think this is one that will change a lot by the region because work yeah. structures are different in, in Europe than they are in Asia, than they are in North America. And funding sources are different. Right. I feel like it also stemmed from a place where a lot of the researchers were saying that if you can't pay us more, at least pay us for the amount of work you're expecting us to put in. So. One of the comments said, don't expect people to work full time in a half payment position. And you need to be paying them for all the hours they're putting in. It's a novel idea. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, um, 
it's it's very it's terrifying to see that such things which are commonplace in maybe in like a corporate job or like a place which has these these human resource policies are things that people need to really plead for in 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 uh, in this kind of setting a lot of the people also spoke about fixed term contracts uh, being a problem because uh, it really limits their opportunities to just move on with their life right so it's, tell me about what what that is i'm not familiar with a fixed term contract in science right so a fixed term contract is when you sign on to a job in in say a corporate setting or an industry setting it's not a fixed term contract you're not signing on for 3 years or 2 years uh, you're going to work there indefinitely until you choose to move on otherwise right so this sort of fixed term contract is something that i've only seen in academia i haven't seen it elsewhere where you're just doing a postdoc for 2 years or i i have a friend who's currently doing a postdoc for 8 months and i was shocked what is that i i even asked her like what are you going to do after and she said i have no idea so i feel like a lot of the stress comes from just not knowing where your next paycheck is going to come after and just uh, based on my personal conversations with researchers it really gets in the way of life if you're thinking of making a long term commitment like you're thinking of moving in with a partner buying a house having a child it's not going to be possible if you know that you're not going to have a job after say 12 months or 13 months so i feel like a lot of the stress the feeling overwhelmed and just the mental health challenges uh, stem from a lot of things like this that we don't necessarily talk about and they're just policies they're they're decisions that the university has made about how they're going to fund their research or to pay their researchers and it could be changed i really liked that this came out and that we were able to present it on a larger platform because when people talk about poor mental health we're talking about stress we're talking about anxiety no one's really talking about the root cause of any of this and i feel like there's this flawed picture in which the onus of coping or managing this stress or just dealing with it is put only on the researcher and that's not just their responsibility right if if the environment that they're working in is contributing to this stress or even exacerbating the problem then that needs to be fixed um i i recently came across this quote that said if a flower doesn't bloom you fix the environment in which it's growing and you don't you don't tell the flower to grow better and so i feel this wow. is a great analogy yeah for this particular um topic you're so right and i think the the natural tendency for somebody looking at this is saying oh wow graduate students have real mental health challenges we should focus on getting them into therapy or treatment or you know we should we should address the symptoms as opposed to what you're talking about which is what's well, because their their faculty member is screaming at them every day that is what's causing their mental health challenges or it's the uncertainty about their future or it's the the pay that they can't make ends meet at home it's all of these other like you said it's the soil that it's growing in and the water and the sunlight right. and it's not the flower that uh is just not trying hard enough. So I recently uh I worked on a mental health video series called Some Days Are Better Than Others and I I just um I interviewed a couple of researchers to just talk to me about their lived experience of mental illness and mental health issues in academia and it feels like there's no room for the actual lived experience of mental illness when people who aren't affected by mental illness even are going through all of these problems which are caused by systemic issues and so um i feel like yes there there could be uh, provisions for things like therapy and uh, there could be provisions for things like i i don't know subsidized medication but then if the person is going to be the person who is living with mental illness is still expected to work in the same kind of toxic environment then nothing's going to change so i feel like it should be like a double pronged approach or or i don't think it's going to work yeah and that was one of your recommendations to provide psychological support and counseling services yeah. and and i think importantly to normalize discussions around mental health yes. mental health is health you know we yes. we can talk about going to the gym and nobody or going to the doctor or taking medication uh for flu but 
if you have a mental health issue that we can't talk about and you should you should bury that and and i think there's something very wrong in that that notion yeah some of the comments that came along specifically with regard to mental illness and mental health and the stigma associated with it it was really heartbreaking so a lot of people said that it'll just help me to know that i'm not alone and uh, instead of normalizing instead of normalizing anxiety and feeling stressed as a routine part of academic life if you could just normalize that it's okay to be overwhelmed because it is overwhelming that that's going to help me if i know that i'm if i know that i'm a researcher in the us and there's another researcher in japan who's going through the exact same thing and uh, i'm not failing by feeling overwhelmed that's really going to help me i feel like there was also a lot of calls for support in terms of informing people who are in charge like supervisors or mentors or just university officials uh if if you do have people around who are living with mental illness then they are going to require certain accommodations and uh, it's not going to be possible for them to do things in the in the same time frame or with the urgency with which you would necessarily want so i was telling you about the video series that i was working on and one of the researchers said that she lives with bipolar and because of that she had to get accommodations to write her qualifying exams because she couldn't do a 3 day writing marathon because she needed to sleep and it's so uh, true so important yeah yeah so i feel like um things like this would really help we cannot have a quarterly session on managing stress without addressing the stressors is how i would look at it i love that example with the person with bipolar disorder because even if you're you know we talked about physical health and mental health even if yeah. your physical and mental health are top notch why should anybody have to do a 3 days with no sleep writing marathon like if that is the exactly. structure of your comprehensive exam change it right, right? It, you know exactly. i think what what the person is revealing is a flaw in the the exam not a flaw in the person exactly um you, one of the recommendations is is related and it talks about allowing more flexibility in the work approach uh and ensuring a good work life balance it's kind of related to what we were just talking about yeah. this came up a lot in in the recommendations didn't it it did yeah it did i think it comes also from it it kind of it is in sync and aligned with what we found in the qualitative results wherein um i i don't recall the exact number but i think over one third or i think about 40% said that they didn't have time for hobbies or recreation or spending time with their family or just doing things that weren't work related and i know a lot of people say i don't have time to go to the gym or i don't have time to pursue a hobby but if you're looking at the numbers like this wherein someone genuinely does not have the time then uh, it's really a cause for concern because work is a part of life it's not it, it cannot be your entire life there's so many things that you do that fill out your day and uh, i feel like this was something that really bothered me that they didn't have time for simple things like um, social activities or meeting up with friends or spending time with their family i think that that really bothered me were there policies that you recommend that would help institutions sort this out i mean it's it's one thing to say improve work life balance but specifically is there something that a, a university or a program can do about it flexibility is definitely one of the things that would help here just people making their own hours and not necessarily having to work or stay back at work because someone else is staying back at work they don't necessarily have so if it's a pi that say can stay until 10 10 pm but there's several others who probably have other i don't know caretaking responsibility or they just have other things going on which they need to cater to so i feel like that sort of flexibility would really help i feel like a prescribed working hours would also help wherein like you have in corporate you're telling people that we work 9 hours a day or we work 8 hours a day that would really help and then i feel like there should also be an expectation for if you haven't finished something today you can always pick it up tomorrow i don't see that coming across at all there's always this i need to finish it exactly i need to finish it today i need to finish it now 
and uh, i feel like that's probably coming across because no one has really normalized this whole thing of it's just a task on your to do list and you can always pick it up tomorrow uh another thing that really uh, came through in the comments in terms of work life balance was people just telling universities and i don't know people in charge to mean what they say and i really resonate with that if you're telling people you cannot tell people to maintain a work life balance while expecting them to work long hours or expecting them to work weekends so if you are asking your people to strive for a work life balance then them attending them attending a session that just just more time uh, is not going to help in fact you have to do the work and create facilities and create policies that would actually encourage them to do that so for so a simple thing could be like if you have um, a supportive supervisor then the person reminding you to take time off because they can clearly see that you're burning out or that you're exhausted or that you've been working so hard and so you deserve a break it's not even the question about earning time off everybody needs time off you deserve that time off and so it's about just simple things like reminding the person that you have all of this time off you haven't taken any leaves and i think you should i think you need a vacation so i think something like that would also work with universities and research organizations is meaning what they say i think the real challenge here is the federated nature of lab management because the department may have a policy where everybody takes time off but if you're in the lab where the pi is there till 10 p.m. and you you have a you have a decision to make do i follow the department okay. policy or do i show up because i know my pi is going to be there and notice um i, I okay. it's just so challenging because i i've i've been in some labs where it's it's very chill people take weekends they leave to pick up their kids at 5 p.m. and it's it's normal and i've been in labs where you work weekends and nights so i i don't know there this one really feels challenging because i don't know how you get a policy to trickle yeah. down into the the different uh labs yeah i think you have a good point there i feel like this would probably have to be like a mix of it coming from the higher ups and of it just being a personal responsibility i mean why would you want the people you're working with to be burned out that's not going to be it's not going to be a good recipe for quality work at all everyone's going to be so exhausted so i feel like that personal responsibility on some level it should come of just wanting people to feel to feel at peace and to feel rested and to not be overwhelmed all the time well and this relates to one of the recommendations which is provide better management or supervision and hold managers to account for poor behavior and it, it relates to some of the other things yeah. we talked about today is this is this just training sessions for PIs how do you envision holding managers to account and and providing better management so i from just the comments that came in i feel like a lot of people said that someone who is a PI or someone who has a lot of ex, who has a lot of research experience uh, and in that they are senior they might not necessarily have any management skills and so uh, you cannot just make them in charge of five people's lives work lives without really putting down some kind of uh, if not supervisory training then at least prepping them for the kind of work that they're in for uh, so in, in corporate or, or say in industry you see this happen all the time where someone is being promoted to a managerial position and so they've gone through either a big like a long training session or like a crash course but someone has told them that they are now responsible for this this and this and i feel like that doesn't necessarily happen in academia and so what we eventually end up with is probably a pi who is expecting those five people to work in the exact same fashion as uh, they do and that won't necessarily work so i feel like uh, before we hold people account we should be equipping them with the kind of tools and skills that they need to do a good job and it could be a condition of employment or a condition of of achieving tenure that you have gone right. through some training at a minimum to be able to manage right. people because you're you're so right you don't necessarily get to that position by being a great manager you get there by being good at the bench exactly simple things like just being able to manage teams or to monitor people's workloads or even assigning work I think I I think being able to assign work and help people prioritize what is important for the now 
and we can always part this for later you can't necessarily do everything together so i feel like that is a that is something that we do need and it's probably also just getting people kind of skills that they would need to facilitate other people's success that is what managers do right they're not just they're not just there to bark or they're not just there good to managers yes, good and, managers yeah good that. managers right i'm sorry i'm speaking from personal experience i have a great manager and so um they're helping you seek out opportunities and facilitate your success and it's not just about doing a b and c but it's a longer it's it's a longer vision that's great um a couple of the other recommendations uh and, and something i think is perfectly achievable which is encourage career development and provide training to researchers so easy to do i mean it, it takes time but it goes back to providing opportunities for students to meet people in careers that are not in academic research or that are right uh, having lunch with faculty members i think that are not your PI can be really useful to understand other perspectives. Uh, going out to industry internships, having speakers come in, I think there's a lot that people can do to make that happen. Did you have any great comments from the uh, survey respondents that helped you with that one? Uh, not in terms of career progression, but definitely in terms of training that would foster career development. So um, some of the people said that a a lot of the positions that i would potentially apply for requires me to have an x number of publications but no one really taught me how to write a manuscript that would likely get published so i think things like this wherein uh, you are not just expecting um researchers to just you're just not leaving them at the starting line and you're just telling them okay i'll see you when the race is done and uh, good luck hanging <laughs> turns there. out there are hurdles so, yeah. and uh, it's a horse race and <laughs> He didn't give him any instruction. Absolutely. Yeah, as I feel like they're all so a, a lot of the things that came out, but they're just required to do so many things like publish and attend conferences and present posters and uh, you know uh, review articles, and no one's really telling them how or what, and they have to figure it out on their own. So my point is, uh, how can you have a certain set expectation if you're not really equipping people? with the skills that they need to meet that expectation or meet that goal. So true. Recommendation number eight was move away from publish or perish culture. How, yes. how is that even possible? Because that is so central to the way academic research runs. Yeah, I'm afraid I don't have a straight answer for that. But I feel like just the fact that the survey was able to bring that out, that two-thirds of 13,000 researchers have strongly agreed that they are under tremendous pressure to publish papers. I, I think that says something by itself. I don't have an answer for how this could probably be figured out, but I feel like uh, just based on my experiences with speaking to researchers uh, and the comments that came in, a lot of the people said that, can we just focus on quality of publications rather than quantity of publications? And do I really have to have X number of papers? Is that really making me more qualified in a literal sense for a position. And a lot of them said that they don't even feel right competing on that kind of level because they don't feel like it's, it's I, I, I don't know, they don't feel like it's making them more capable in any sense. And uh, I feel like even the publishing system is so time consuming that you're really just setting yourself up for failure if you're uh, in the publication base. Yeah, it's creating a, a bad incentive to split up yeah. a topic into multiple papers or to publish in a journal that is not reputable because you need to have that publication on your record. There's there's a lot of bad places that leads to. So I think paying attention to it, right. recognizing where the pressure is coming from. And again, like you said, two thirds of the researchers said this is I'm under pressure to do this. So I've seen a lot of um, conversation about just changing how success is perceived in academia. And uh, there's people doing so many more things. And I think um, I think the Royal Society of Chemistry came up with something called resume for researchers, where you're giving importance, you're giving a great deal of importance, not just to their publications, but also to their science communication activities and stuff that they're doing within their community or social impact 
initiatives or activities that they are participating in in their university or uh, them just uh, mentoring uh, younger researchers and so i feel like i feel like all of this is already happening we're all already doing all of this but no one is necessarily assigning any value to it so i feel like if recruitment officials and funding bodies and um, if there was a way that we could i don't know assign greater value or change the way we define success in academia then that might be one way to get people to stop being so pressurized by the publication cycle yeah we can do it and we can do it by highlighting how important it is to change you know dan this is one of those issues where I wish I could just, you know, I listen to something like this, I listen to a conversation like the one you had with Andrea, and I wish I could just snap my fingers and make all this happen immediately. Um, I know it's not that easy, but we can't do anything to fix these issues if we don't first understand um, what the problems truly are. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting lens on how to solve some of these problems because these are really just people, these are scientists. These are people that are working in this career saying, here's what I would like to see. This is not a, an expert panel discussion. It's not um, HR folks. This is scientists saying, Hey, here are the things that I wish we could change. So I, th- I think that's an interesting lens and a useful one because I think a lot of listeners will hear their own voice in some of these recommendations. Well, you know, Dan, I think, the only way things can really change is actual policy shift at an institutional level. I mean, Andrea talked about specifics that came from this survey, you know, this ongoing problem of bullying. Um, There's really no better word for it by advisors, Um, work-life balance or lack of it, graduate students feeling um, this pressure, implicit or explicit, to be uh, working 60, 70, 80, 80 hours a week on the weekends. Um, I'm not convinced that any of that's going to change until you have actual policy shifts um, by universities, by institutions um, that really mandate these things to happen. And I think what, it, and, and we talked about this last week, Dan, you know, I've seen institutions start to identify some of these issues uh, if we take the the treatment of graduate students by their advisor uh, for example you know I've seen institutions begin to acknowledge that this is a problem and start to do things like draft you know draft documents about well what are the expectations for how a graduate student um, should be treated in the lab. And that is great. That is a fantastic first step and it's clear that institutions that are doing that, are at least laying the groundwork uh, for making improvements in some of these areas. But again, I'm not convinced that anything really changes until there are some teeth to those expectations. What happens if an advisor continues to fail to meet those expectations and continues to treat their trainees and the people in their lab poorly? If there's no consequences, then there's not going to be any behavioral change. You're so right. And I I agree having at least the policy in writing would establish for the graduate student or the postdoc, hey, this is not okay. Somebody took the time to outline that this behavior or this expectation is against what the department believes is the right way to to treat a student or a postdoc. But so I think that would go a long way to, to changing the culture. But to your point, Josh, I think there gets to be this conflict of interest if Professor A is bringing in $10 million of research funding, are we really going to do something about his bad behavior or do we really like that research funding? And so we get into these situations where I think the student or the postdoc suffers because we have a, a person who's, it's almost like the too big to fail idea. You know, Dan, I hear I hear that point and I hear that line of reasoning and no doubt that is probably... That is probably a conversation that has gone on behind closed doors at institutions with faculty who are bringing in a lot of research funds, but there are these obvious issues in how they're treating the people in their labs. But, you know, I wonder, Dan, I think the way that institutions are having those conversations, they're looking at it through a lens of, well, what would we lose if we have these consequences? And that's that's what you're getting at. Right. But I think what they're failing to see is what might we gain by doing this better? And, you know, I mean, think about this, Dan. 
you know, imagine that one institution decides to go out on a limb and they're going to actually set some policy, some specific policy on the treatment of graduate students, consequences for uh, bad actors and bad behavior of advisors. And this policy becomes well-known and advertised, and this institution really embraces uh, this culture shift with real teeth behind it. And let's say they go beyond that. You know, they also institute some specific policies on work-life balance where they require grad students to take breaks, and they provide some real structure around time off or hours that grad students should be working And they really publicize that and embrace it, too. And now imagine you are a really great applicant who's considering that program versus three other programs that don't really mention these topics at all or don't present any real solutions. Or, you know, even beyond potential new grad students, you know, imagine you're... uh, you know, you're a postdoc on the job market and you're looking for your first faculty position and you've got lots of potential, you're highly sought after. And one of your options is this one institution that really seems to be prioritizing how people are treated within their department or um, that people really are prioritizing their their mental wellness and their work-life balance. What might you choose if you are either one of those individuals trying to, to choose an institution to go to? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And as, as a postdoc, maybe you have a family and you're thinking, I'm going to go to this university and work 80 hours a week, never see my kids and be stressed out when I'm home. Or I could go over here, get maybe the same number of publications, do the same quality of research, but actually have a life and, and to have your mental health intact. I think you're, you're so right, Josh. Uh, and those stories will come out that that word of mouth will spread about that program, this <laughs> imaginary program where they actually have some of these policies. I, I'm kind of struck by the notion of thinking about this from the what are we going to gain? I really like that frame. And I will say I have very limited experience with some of these real bullies as a, as a principal investigator, but these people exist. And from the ones that I've seen, it's not just the yelling at the postdoc in the lab. Typically, that personality trait carries with it some other negative personality traits. And so the the PIs that I know about that kind of had these warning signs, they'd scream at people or whatever, they also go on to do other terrible things. And so I think kind of addressing that early on when those symptoms show up, you may avoid further down the road, uh, other issues that actually get the university in trouble. Yeah, you know, you're so right, Dan. Some of these, some of I'm not going to name names, Josh. I know you want me. No, you, you <laughs> probably know all the people I know. Well, no, but you're absolutely right, Dan. Some of these really high-profile situations where really well-known scientists have finally been removed or or been fired, you know, this happens in this really large spectacle that not only makes those individuals um, really look bad and fall from grace, but really actually makes the institutions they're affiliated with look bad because you're absolutely right. Yeah, we, we, turn, our, we turn a blind eye to this behavior, and it turns out, that that leads to an impunity with other behaviors. And and so I think they can be extremely damaging to the university's own reputation. Well, and you know, if there were to that point, if there was a, you know, if, if there was a course correction early on in that advisor's career, right. And there were real consequences. If there were real consequences for them behaving that way early in their career, well, one of two things would have happened either they would have exited that career path and would have not done damage uh, that they ended up doing, or they would have sought help and learned. And I mean, you know, people can also change and do better. And sometimes, you know, you don't become a monster overnight, right? Um, exactly. It's one small decision after another that becomes habit in the way you treat treat people. Exactly. And I don't think firing has to be the answer for every infraction, right? Uh, there there are ways to do mediation, training. There, there could be what we, you know, they're not exactly consequences. They're, hey, this behavior is not appropriate. Here's how we're going to help you address it. And maybe after the fifth or sixth time, <laughs> then we have a conversation about, can you still work here? But uh, I don't think this is like you yell at a student and you're immediately fired. I think this is you need to go through some training or some help to uh, deal with those impulses. You're so right, Dan. And, you know, my hope is 
I know the the listening audience of our show tends to be uh, the trainees themselves, graduate students, postdocs. I don't know how many faculty or if any administrators actually listen to this, but you know, for those of you who are listening, I would I would encourage you to, even if you don't take our podcast episode, you know, look into the results from this this Cactus uh, Mental Health Survey and share that with leaders in your own departments and your own programs and get this conversation going and raise these issues. Um, you know, Dan, I really love the analogy that Andrea Andrea made. Um, about flowers and and she said I do too if, because I love flowers but go ahead <laughs> you do love flowers and you know Andrea's saying if you plant a flower and it withers you don't immediately blame the flower but you try to fix the environment to make it more conducive conducive for the flower to thrive maybe more or less sun or water or there's some nutrient that's missing or the pot's too small um, you know I've heard a similar analogy uh, with fish where if you're walking along the edge of a pond and you see one dead fish, you know, you might say to yourself, wow, I wonder what was wrong with that fish. But if you walk along the edge of a pond and you see hundreds of dead fish, you immediately say, there must be something wrong with the water. And I think that's what this survey is indicating to us. I think so often in programs, well, there's that one student who's stressed or the one student that had that left the program because they couldn't handle it. Uh, but what this survey illustrates for us is it's not just an individual issue. It's not just this student or that student. But this is a widespread systemic issue, and we need to think about it as such. And again, programs providing support resources like more and more are doing – providing mental health counseling, resources um, like that, work-life balance workshops. These are absolutely needed. These are totally great, but they don't get at the root cause of why those things are so needed uh, within graduate programs specifically. Yeah. All right, Josh. Well, I know we can't solve every one of these problems today, but I hope that our listeners will uh, read through this report, How to Foster a Supportive Research Environment from the Cactus Foundation, and share some of their ideas with us. Uh, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. And if you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the disgusting beer money and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. I'm hopeful that our next few beers are not disgusting. Nope, we're going to do this pumpkin beer trial that is yet to be revealed. I'm looking forward to it, Dan. And this has been a real adventure today. We, I feel like we were all over the place. We were in my truck. We were by the fire. Uh, we were, who even knows where we were, Dan? We were all over the place. Well, on behalf of everybody, Josh, I think we all wish you happy landings wherever that happens to be. I appreciate it, Dan, and I'm looking forward to uh, many more, many more podcasts with you in the future. We'll talk to you soon, Josh. <laughs>